From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. To get acquainted with some of the biggest issues facing Colorado, you don't have to go to the state capitol or a city council meeting. Simply step onto a lawn or traipse through a garden where issues of water, climate change, and even governance play out right in your own backyard. Today, a special installment of Colorado Wonders, landscapes that complement our climate, are resilient in the face of climate change, and that won't freak out your HOA. We all know bluegrass lawn. What we don't know is all the great alternatives that exist to a bluegrass lawn. We've done formal Victorian xeriscapes that used probably at most a third of the water of a bluegrass lawn. We visit a lawn in Lakewood and meet up with a xeriscaping pioneer. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Lawns and gardens are a microcosm of some of the biggest issues facing Colorado. Think water, climate change, and the politics that go with. We're going to dedicate much of the show today to debunking some perennial myths in Colorado. That a beautiful lawn has to be thirsty, and that xeriscaping must mean rocks and cactus. We'll also consider how landscaping can not only be resilient in the face of a warming planet, but help combat the trend. Our journey begins with a question that came to us through Colorado Wonders from a woman in Lakewood, Kara Ferris. Hi, Kara. Hi. Nice how are to you? Meet you? Nice to meet you. Thanks for having us. What's your question for Colorado Wonders? I am curious why we are still planting so much bluegrass with all the new construction that's going on in, well, especially along this western part of the town. I'm wondering why we're still doing that when we're asked to conserve. I noticed bluegrass in your front yard. Yes. Are you a part of the problem? (laughs) (laughs) I had no choice. You had no choice. Tell me about that. When we built the house eight years ago, There were certain mandates given to us from the city and the HOA, and that included a certain amount of turf, bluegrass turf, um, and the tree lawn, as well as, you know, a certain number of shrubs that we had to have in the front yard and a number of evergreen trees or a number of deciduous trees, etc. Why don't you walk us around your property? Sure. Look at this grassy lawn here by the side of your house, Kara. What do you think of it? It's never looked this good. (laughs) Oh, you got it nice for us. No, actually, the rain has cooperated this year. So it's been really nice to see it this green. I mean, this is the conundrum, right? Grass, it just feels so nice. It looks great. But there's that lingering feeling that it doesn't quite belong. Yes, yes. Especially having grown up in Albuquerque. And where everybody says, you know, xeriscaping, water, water restrictions, water-wise gardening, et cetera, et cetera. Give us an example of the kinds of things you're curious about changing. Uh, this lawn wraps around the side and the back of your beautiful home here in Lakewood. I think one of the biggest issues we might be facing, given that we really don't have an option to change the lawn, is our sprinkler system. Okay, so you have watering questions. Well, we're going to get some answers from Allison Peck. She's a designer and contractor with Matrix Gardens in Boulder. She previously taught sustainable gardening at Front Range Community College. Hi there, Allison. Hello. What perspective can you lend on the idea of mandates for grass? Well, I think it's a bigger question than mandates. 
I think what's really happened is that bluegrass lawns have become the accepted landscape here. If you buy a new home, usually the builder will landscape the front of the yard at least, and what they do is roll out bluegrass lawn, put in the required number of trees, number of shrubs, and everybody knows how to take care of bluegrass lawn. And it's attractive, right? And it's inexpensive. Oh. It's very inexpensive to roll out sod. Anything else is probably going to be more expensive up front. In the long run, there are lots of alternatives to lawns that will be less expensive when you keep in mind the cost of watering, mowing, fertilizing, all the maintenance that's required. But up front, lawn is inexpensive, and everybody knows how to take care of it. You pull out your weed and feed, you've got your lawn taken care of. Any other type of landscape is culturally a challenge. I also think that if you had two homes side by side, mm -hmm. and one had the classic green lawn, mm -hmm. and one had more of a high desert look, I have a feeling one would sell faster than the other. Do you think that's true? I don't think that's our only alternative. So we all know bluegrass lawn. What we don't know is all the great alternatives that exist to a bluegrass lawn. So the alternative could be a high plains native plant landscape, but it could also be, um, honestly, it could look like an English cottage garden oh. and still be a water-conserving garden. We've done formal Victorian xeriscapes that used probably at most a third of the water of a bluegrass lawn. Classic, formal symmetry, gorgeous colors, low water. And grass I can roll around in? Some grass. Yeah, we're not trying to eliminate grass. This is a prairie. This is a grassland by nature, so grass belongs here. It's just a matter of growing this bluegrass, which is a high water use plant. I'm curious what those alternative grasses mm -hmm. are. You hear about buffalo grass, right. but almost nothing else. Right. So I started my business in 84, passionate about resource conservation. So I started doing xeriscaping back in 1984. Xeriscape was invented by Denver Water. And xeriscape comes from xeric, meaning dry, and landscape. So yeah. you have a xeriscape. But xeriscape covers a wide array of alternatives. So it could be a landscape that simply had a little bit less lawn. It could be a landscape that was all lawn, but it was using a more water-conserving turf. There's so many different alternatives there. So xeriscape is not rock and cactus. It's something, an idea we've been fighting since day one. Ah. Rock and cactus don't even belong here. I mean, this is a grassland, not a desert. You know, I tried some yucca in this yard, right. and it lasted a year. But there's tons of yucca that grow wild. I just picked the wrong species. Well, and it may also be a matter of your soil. Most of us along the Front Range are gardening in heavy clay, which we love to curse because it's dry. When it's dry, it's like concrete. But clay actually holds a lot of moisture. So I think part of the difference between our landscapes here and what you grew up in in Albuquerque is that Albuquerque has a sandier soil and it doesn't hold water. So, but going back to, you had a question about alternative lawn grasses. I have to say, I've tried everything I could find, <laughs> and there is no replacement for bluegrass in a yard that's getting a lot of wear and tear. So bluegrass is a great lawn grass. It's very resilient. Kids can wear holes in it, dogs can pee and, wear, and dig in it, and it will grow right back. It's really indestructible. If you stop watering it, it'll turn brown. You start watering it again, it comes right back. So there aren't many grasses that will do that here in this climate. We have used a lot of turf-type tall fescue, 
Uh, tall fescue. Turf type tall fescue. So it is slightly coarser leaf, but you wouldn't notice it unless they were side by side with bluegrass. It has a much deeper root system, which makes it much more water conserving. We've also tried buffalo grass. I was just down in the Comanche grasslands in southeast Colorado, and there are square miles of beautiful blue-green buffalo grass. It's in some ways a miracle grass. doesn't need any water. You don't need to mow it. No water? No water. It's a native grass. I just, I mean, assuming you get some rain and snow in sure. a particular year, you don't need any extra water. But the drawback is it wants it hot and dry. It wants to be baking down in southeast Colorado. And most of the time, almost every time we've tried it here, and we've tried it many times, it is invaded by cool season weeds and grasses because it's what we call a warm season grass. It's only green once the soil warms up in the spring, which is usually in May. And then it goes dormant probably sometime in October when the soil cools down again. Now, so, I have to say, you are not convincing me that I should have an alternative to bluegrass so far. Well, it all depends on what you want. In what we've developed is our approach to low water landscapes, water conserving landscapes, we're generally not trying to get rid of the bluegrass lawn. We're just trying to be smart about where do you need a lawn and how big does it need to be? So that it's not just the default landscape is always bluegrass. Sure, let's use it, particularly if you have kids and dogs. Maybe if you don't have kids and dogs, you use turf-type tall fescue. We've been playing with blue-gramma grass, which is another native prairie grass. So, the, so a mix. Exactly. Okay. So keep some lawn. If your number one priority is to conserve water, Kara, you got it just right. The first thing is to think about how you're watering it. My husband curses all the time about how inefficient the sprinklers are in the tree lawn and how we water the sidewalk probably as much as we're watering the grass and the trees that are planted there. And you can see through the entire neighborhood that the tree lawn exists. Like I said, it's beautiful, but no one has an efficient watering method on the tree lawn. I'd love to know how to water that effectively. So that's a tricky one. It's very tough to efficiently water small lawn areas. And actually, when you look at where you might not need lawn, those small strips are the number one place that you probably don't need your lawn because they're surrounded by paving. They tend to dry out. You can't really get sprinklers that water a strip efficiently. So you're almost always inevitably watering the sidewalk. This is, to be clear, the area between the sidewalk and the street that Mm -hmm. Kara's talking about. It's this band of grassiness. And you're saying these are notoriously hard to water efficiently. Right. And they're notorious water users because they tend to be so hot and dry. And a place like Albuquerque has been working on successful street landscapes for a long time. And it sounds like they've come up with some designs and plants that work very well. In the front range, I see communities really struggling with, what do we put in the medians? What do we put in the tree lawns if it's not lawn? And it's it's a cultural thing, you know? The, The people who are designing it, the people who are maintaining it, have to learn what else to plant and how to maintain it, right? So it takes a while to change. It takes a while for, Kara, if you decided that you were going to do, maybe take out some of this front lawn and do a mix of other plantings, it takes a while for neighbors to say, Oh, look, that's actually a lot more interesting than a lawn. I think if you'd seen this landscaping done well, you Mm -hmm. wouldn't be so cautious about changing it. But we just don't get the exposure to it here in the Front Range. So let me go back to watering. We got a little distracted. So, yes, the tree lawn is a classic example of a place that's hard to water efficiently. But a lot of lawns, honestly, the sprinkler system is not that well laid out. 
and nobody wants a brown spot in their lawn. And this is particularly true for corporate campuses and multifamily housing, condos, things like that. It's very, very common that two or 300% as much water is being applied as is really needed just so we don't have a brown spot, right? <laughs> so one of the first things to do, whether it's a home landscape or a larger landscape, is to have what's called an irrigation audit done. So it's kind of like having an energy audit for your house or even a tune-up for your car. Um, somebody can come take a look at how your sprinklers are laid out, see if they're watering efficiently, evenly, and there's actually, you can get a certification from the Irrigation Association, which is the national association as an irrigation auditor. So there are people certified in doing this, and there are also a lot of cities, towns, and water providers that offer irrigation audits. Sounds expensive. Not if the city or water provider is helping cover the cost of it. Ah. So there are, a lot of cities and, and water providers are very concerned with water con conservation. More and more people same or less amount of water. So it, it is a growing priority in a lot of places. So you can have an irrigation audit, you can tune up your irrigation system. And the other huge thing you can do is get what's called a smart controller. There are a variety of different ways they work, but essentially they're monitoring the local weather or the moisture level in the soil. And they're actually modifying the irrigation schedule so that it reflects the actual weather. Because usually people turn on their irrigation timer in the spring, Water's the same level all season, turn it off in the fall, but our lawns don't need as much water in the spring and fall. So you can save 30 or 40% on your water use just by using a smart controller. And is a smart controller expensive? I mean, as a contractor, they're probably one to two hundred dollars. I don't. Th they're quite common by now. My water bill can attest to leaks within the sprinkler system being a large issue as well. What is your water bill? You know, actually. It's cheap, I have to say. In the winter, we run, run about $26, and then when we're watering in the summer, it's about 100 So significant amount of water use, but I still think that that's pretty cheap. You almost sound like you feel guilty about it. I, well, if, if it came down to simple economics, I would think that if they charged more, we'd use less. It's, again, a slow process. I don't think it was that long ago that the city of Denver actually did not have individual water meters for homes. Nobody was watching how much was being used. So and Here in Lakewood, do you have an individual water meter? Yeah, we do. Yeah, it's on the other side of the house. But we had another question about lawns and gardens and xeriscaping through Colorado Wonders from Emily Blender of Grand Junction. She couldn't be with us, but she asks, I'm wondering how to transition my yard that's landscaped to a more climate friendly yard and what time frame do I have to get it completed? So this is an acknowledgement that not only are we in an arid climate, but that with climate change, things are probably going to get arider. Mm -hmm. uh, wh what about transitioning? So many of us are looking at our yards and wondering, what can we do that's helpful? What can we do that can make a difference? And water conservation is certainly something that's going to be more and more an issue. And since most of us have largely bluegrass lawns, the first place to look at is those places in your yard where it's hard to keep up your bluegrass lawn. Where is it turning brown? Where is the irrigation not working so well? It could be a small lawn area. It could be a south-facing area, an area that's particularly sunny. Uh, for whatever reason, it's not working well as lawn. Or it may be a far corner that, where you're never using the lawn, so there's no reason to have it. Interesting. It's as if you're letting nature guide you. Yes. You, one of the things that's really 
exciting and interesting about landscaping along the Front Range is that what we call microclimates make a huge difference. Because we're at a high altitude, it's dry, it's sunny, what will grow well on the south side of your house is entirely different than what will grow well on the north side of your house. So most yards have some parts of the lawn that do very well and other parts that always struggle no matter what you do. So an easy place to start making a change is those places where it's hard to keep up the lawn. Hmm. And so then you want to think about what would you love to have? To me, that's one of the joys of gardens is they're your place to create something that you'll really enjoy. You know, some people love lawn mowing. If you want to mow your lawn, just choose something that doesn't need as much water. If you hate lawns, but you just wish you had more birds, bees, and butterflies, put in a habitat garden, which can be very water conserving. And what might those plants be? Oh, goodness. There's worlds and worlds of them. Um, One of the things to know if you're interested in bringing in pollinators and birds into your yard is that having native plants is very valuable. One of the really eye-opening things that's come up in the last probably 10, 15 years is that insects are actually wonderful in your garden. They're not a problem. (laughs) So we all love birds, but it turns out 90%, over 90% of all birds, even if they're mostly seed eaters or uh, fruit eaters, when they're raising their young, they need insects. So you actually want native plants in your yard. You want to let the insects live on them because that is the bottom of the food chain. That's what supports all the birds you might enjoy in your yard. Give me a few of your favorites. Actually, a plant that's fun in a lot of different ways is a sunflower. Anything that's in the sunflower family is great for pollinators. They've got all these little flowers in the inside of the flower that are full of pollen. So you'll just find them swarming with all types of bees, honeybees, wild bees. And then those sunflowers set seeds. And there those seeds are for all the birds to eat. So lots of other flowers are in that family. Sunflowers, the native blanket flower is a great native flower, black-eyed Susans, the fall asters are also in that same family. There's also lots of plants that are in the mint family. If you are raising honeybees, mint is one of the number one plants to grow for honeybees. And then they can be used later in mojitos. Absolutely. Okay. (laughs) Kara, do you have mojitos ready for us? I I do have some mint growing. Oh, good. Okay. So we have the ingredients at least. Do any of those plants sound familiar? And talk to us about what you did in the places where you could. I tried to go with that butterfly-friendly, bee-friendly plantings in some respects. I did lavender, and the sage, actually, Mm -hmm. is covered with bees. I also planted a rider thyme. Mm -hmm. It's a ground cover, that, and when it blooms, it seems to Mm -hmm. be covered with the bees. What about trees? Are there certain types of low-water trees? Here's one of the secrets about suburban landscapes. In a suburban landscape where most everybody has lawns, those lawns are being watered a lot, and there's a lot of just residual moisture in the soil. So to be perfectly honest, if I put a native low-water-use tree right next to the lawn, it might drown. Oh, that's so interesting. So our lawn decisions, our grass decisions, are driving our tree decisions. Right. And the thing to remember about trees is that a 20-foot-tall tree might have roots going 20 feet out in every direction. And plants are smart enough to get their roots where they can harvest the water. So all these plants that are growing around the lawn, I can guarantee you, if we had x-ray vision and could see what the roots were doing, those roots are all under the lawn because that's where the water is. Yeah, I've learned that the hard way. I've tried to plant something other than these 
pussy willows here, but we have a French drain that runs along this side, and there's so much water that comes down in this area that I've unfortunately killed some beautiful trees Mm -hmm. um, trying to get them to take here. I'd like to go back to this idea of the HOA, Mm -hmm. the government body everybody loves to hate. And I I say that as a vice president of my own HOA. (laughs) But are HOAs driving a lack of culture change? We work with a lot of customers, a lot of clients who live in neighborhoods that have HOAs. And to be perfectly honest, we have never had a landscape design turned down because it didn't have enough lawn. So our experience, and HOAs vary, but there was actually state law passed sometime in the last 10, 15 years, maybe longer ago, that prohibits HOAs from prohibiting xeriscape, essentially. I think they can require a certain percentage, but they can't require that it be all bluegrass. That's really interesting. Sort of in the same regard as our solar panels. Mm -hmm. They can't tell us we couldn't put them in. So if we wanted to, we would be able to get approved to some degree. So what I would do is check in detail the HOA guidelines, because every HOA is different. And my experience is that if you present them with what is clearly a well-thought-out design and they can see that it will be attractive, that's usually their primary concern is they want to preserve an attractive neighborhood and good resale values. And so if you've clearly put some thought into it, maybe show them some illustrations, some photos of some of the plants, my experience is that they'll be perfectly happy with it. So I have another question, and it's about soil amendment. When we put in the lawn... It was another requirement for Denver Water that we amended the soil to a certain amount. So you have Denver Water in Lakewood? Yes. And I'm wondering how much effect the amendment has on the water intake of of the grass or the success of the grass. Now, amendment sounds positively constitutional. Help us understand what that means. (laughs) So a soil amendment is simply something that's added to the soil to change the quality of the soil. So usually we talk about a soil amendment... Uh, as something that will make it more fertile, that'll make it a better medium for plants to grow in. And for bluegrass lawn, what we usually do is add compost. So the compost adds nutrients to the soil. It also adds organic matter to the soil, which allows water to penetrate more deeply. And the organic matter is actually also food for this amazing world of soil life that's in our soil. Um, And for a bluegrass lawn, you definitely want to do a good job amending the soil. I think part of the reason bluegrass lawns have gotten a bad reputation for water use is that so many suburbs, the house was built, the foundation soil was spread out around the yard, and the sod was simply rolled out over this nasty, heavy subsoil clay. It would be hard for anything to grow in that condition. So another thing that's useful to know, though, is that a lot of our xeric plants, our low-water-use plants, and particularly natives, actually love our nasty clay. They don't want chocolate cake soil. You try to grow a native plant or a xeric plant like this beautiful blue stem joint fur over here in a chocolate cake soil and it'd get huge, it'd get floppy, it's ugly, it's more susceptible to insects. So soil amendment is good for some things, not good for other things. But it sounds to me like if you plant xeric, you are going to have to do a lot less amending. By and large, yes. It, it depends. Again, xeriscape covers such a wide world, but particularly if you were xeriscaping with native plants and plants that are well adapted here, then no, you don't generally need to do soil amendment. 
To circle back to Emily's concerns about climate change, help us put that into context and the kind of growing responsibility that Mm -hmm. homeowners have. Right. Many of us are concerned. We see the weather getting wackier. We see it getting hotter. We wonder what we can do in our daily lives that would make a difference. So if we think about climate-friendly landscaping, there's a few different aspects that really come to mind. Surprisingly enough, um, one of the biggest things we can do to reduce greenhouse gases is to reduce our use of refrigeration and make it more efficient. There's a great book edited by Paul Hawken called Drawdown, and that was one of their number one things that could be done globally to reduce greenhouse gases was to reduce our need for cooling. And You mean air conditioning? Air conditioning. Air conditioning and refrigeration. It's a, it's a wider picture, but you can actually, for example, reduce the need for air conditioning in your home by planting shade trees in the appropriate places, generally on the south side of your house, so that you've got shade on the house during the summer. And that can make a significant difference in your air conditioning bill, or maybe you can get by without it. So another part of having a climate-friendly landscape is to reduce your fossil fuel use. And it may not be obvious, but when you mow a lawn, when you use chemical fertilizers on your lawn, you are using fossil fuels. And it's again, it's because we have so many millions of acres of lawn in this country, it actually adds up and is a significant energy use. So you're not only helping your pocketbook, Mm -hmm. you're not only helping your water use, Mm -hmm. but you're having an effect on greenhouse gas emissions as well. What does that make you think, Kara? Well, there's a happy coincidence for us that our tree lawn has, you know, what will be large shade trees that will will, um, provide shade on our home. Eventually. Eventually. Your kids might be in college. (laughs) True. Another piece of climate friendly is, one, to reduce how you're contributing to the production of greenhouse gases. But delightfully enough, the other thing that landscapes can do is actually sequester carbon. So that's the word we use for we've got too much carbon in the atmosphere. Put it in the ground. Put it in the ground. Exactly. So you can sequester carbon in your yard in a couple different ways. One is by increasing the level of organic matter in your soil. So the compost that was added before the lawn was laid is one way of getting carbon into your soil. Yeah, but you just said that xeric gardens don't require as much of that. They don't. And there's other ways to sequester carbon. So plants are made up of carbon. That's what they do. They pull it into themselves and they sequester it in their roots, in their trunks. And so one of the things that you can do in your yard is simply grow more plants. Just get more what we call biomass. And that includes what we can't see underground. Buffalo grass that we talked about earlier might be an inch tall above ground. It might have roots that go eight feet deep. And upright junipers in New Mexico might have roots that go 200 feet deep. And all of that root is capturing carbon. Exactly. So think about plants that have tentacles (laughs) deep down inside. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And so the trick is that we can't really see them, but we can change how we water to encourage them to develop a deep root system. So our lawns, for example, we usually water two, three times a week. We don't water for that long, and that's appropriate. Bluegrass really won't grow more than about a one-foot deep root system, no matter what you do. But the plants around the lawn, if you water them less frequently, so you might water them once a week, or we have landscapes that have been in for 10 or so years, they're watering them three or four times a summer. That's it. And what they've done is they've watered infrequently but deeply. So they're creating 
a large wetted area underground and the plant roots grow into that. It encourages them to develop this big root system which sequesters carbon but also helps them honestly forage for their own water so they're not dependent on your water. Kara, have you ever given that much thought to the roots? No, no thoughts to the root, but it is bringing me back to the smarter sprinkler Mm -hmm. arrangement. So right now, all our trees and plants are on a different zone, Mm -hmm. and we could easily program that to run differently than our sodded areas. So that's something we can certainly do. Mm -hmm. Well, do you feel like you are wondering a little bit less now? Well, I still wonder about the mandates and when that might change, but... Now I don't feel as guilty (laughs) about having um, so much bluegrass. Do you think Kara's guilt should be assuaged? Well, and I encourage you to look into the actual letter of the homeowner regulations, because my guess is that you could probably reduce your lawn area and replace it with something that you would really enjoy. And maybe that's more pollinator and bird plantings. Um, And if those are designed well they should be less maintenance than the lawn is now. And you'll probably get a lot more enjoyment out of it. Thanks to both of you for being with us, Kara. It's a lovely home. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. That home in Lakewood belongs to Kara Ferris, who reached us through Colorado Wonders. And we met Allison Peck, principal landscape designer at Matrix Gardens in Boulder. What are you curious about in our state? Submit your questions at cpr.org slash coloradowonders. And special thanks to Haley Sanchez and Kelly Griffin, who produced today's segment. When we come back, taking on the global cooling challenge, plus the most Colorado wildflower. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A lot of folks out there question whether or not you can even get addicted to cannabis. Why would you say marijuana doesn't have addiction potential? This guy is here to tell you that it can happen, and it does happen. I mean, it's, it, it, it obviously does. On the latest episode of On Something, Cannabis Addiction. Addiction is addiction, and stuff can ruin your life. Subscribe to On Something on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Before the break, our xeriscaping pioneer mentioned how much refrigeration, air conditioning, contributes to greenhouse gas emissions. And it made me think of our story recently about the Global Cooling Prize. It's a competition to encourage innovation in AC, which has evolved surprisingly little over the years. Ian Campbell is senior fellow, fellow, that is, with the Rocky Mountain Institute based in Colorado, which is the sponsor of this prize. Ian, welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you. I'm pleased to be here. I saw a flyer that says globally the prize is potentially the single biggest technology-driven action we can take to mitigate climate change. Quite a statement. What makes you say that? I think that you have to kind of look at what the trajectory is for air conditioning and, you know, where we are today, air conditioning is, you know, pervasive in certain countries and regions around the world. And notably here in the U.S., in uh, places like Japan, in Korea, and, and also in southern Europe. But where it's not pervasive is in the hottest and the most humid climate zones that sit within the tropics. And that level of growth of today's technology, we just did the analysis looking at the residential segment, and we're looking at about half a degree of global warming by 2100, which is the baseline year that we all look to 
associated with the adoption of residential air conditioning. And the opportunity is to find a better way to keep cool. So what you're talking about is uh, many places on the planet don't yet have air conditioning, but as things get hotter, there will naturally be the desire. And if that desire is met with current technology, uh, you've got a kind of big energy problem. Is it just a question of energy or is it also about the refrigerants in air conditioners? Yeah, and that's one of the challenges with air conditioning. It's a dual impact. It's the direct emissions that will come from refrigerant release through the life of the air conditioner. And it's about the electricity that the air conditioner consumes. And again, if we kind of look at the residential segment, it's about a four to one ratio the electricity to refrigerant. Help me understand that, the electricity to refrigerant. Yeah, so that's the uh, life cycle emissions. So around 20% of the emissions impact or the global warming potential coming from operating an air conditioner is going to be based upon refrigerant release or leakage through the life of the unit plus end of life. And then the other 80% is going to be around the energy that the unit consumes to operate based upon a typical life cycle operation. Okay, so both are potentially contributing to climate change. I I get the sense, Ian, that air conditioning is kind of low-tech and maybe old-tech. So the idea (laughs) is to bring something fresh, something new, and something more efficient. Yeah, that's right. And so our first room air conditioner was introduced to the market back in 1926 by Willis Carrier. And if we could bring him back to life he'd probably recognize an air conditioner if we put it in front of him. There'd be be some things like the digital controls would be new and different, but the fundamentals of the equipment would actually be the same. I mean, that's fascinating because I just think about the the progress of the phone I've had in my life. You know, I started out with a corded phone and now I have an iPhone that's already obsolete. Uh, Why do you think there has been such little progress I think that one of the things is that it's, it's kind of difficult to understand when you go to procure an air conditioner what the life cycle cost of the piece of equipment is. And, you know, we um, around the world, there's different rating systems that people use, but a consumer who's in a store looking to buy a room air conditioner and they see one that costs maybe $150 more than the other that may save them $100 a year in operating cost. The $100 a year of savings in operating costs isn't real apparent, so they tend to pick the unit that's going to cost less money today, and that's what industry has served. So industry hasn't really been driving innovation of how do we get to a better, a, a better technology that uses less electricity, has a lower climate impact. Okay. In walks Rocky Mountain Institute in Boulder with its global <laughs> cooling prize to add some energy to the market. And uh, can anyone compete? My, my Aunt Ida? Uh, or, who, or who is this anyone, director? Anyone can compete. It gets progressively harder as we go through the process because the first thing we ask people to do, and, and the prize is open. It opened in November. We actually launched it in uh, New Delhi in India, which is the fastest growing market for cooling in the world today or air conditioning in the world today. Oh. And the first step is you just have to register on our Global Cooling Prize website. Then you have to submit an intent to apply to describe the technology. 
Then you have to do a, a detailed technical application, including the engineering analysis of how it meets the criteria. And then if you get selected through that round, you get to develop a prototype that will go through three different testing protocols mm. to evaluate whether it meets the price criteria, which is basically an air conditioner that has five times less climate impact. Five times less, the that's the target. The popular unit being sold in the market in India today. In India. Well, yeah. what kind of uh, cool ideas, uh, sorry for that pun, are you getting? Uh, and maybe you can't give too much away because you don't want to play people's hands, but, but what are some of the solutions, and, and if you could explain this in layman's terms, that people are coming up with? We have around 1,500 people, organizations, corporations, including the world's largest air conditioning company that have already registered their intent to apply. And we see a brief summary of those technologies as part of the intent to apply form. There's kind of two main categories that I would say we're seeing. One is to take today's technology and take it uh, closer to the edge of what is theoretically achievable. And when we look at what most units are, and you look at the theoretical maximum performance, most units are going to be somewhere in a 10 to 20% range of maximum theoretical performance. That's, all, that's as far as the industry has come. So we're seeing technologies that take... Oh, let, let me just put that in a different way. Yeah. You're saying that current air conditioning units only achieve 10 to 20% of their energy efficiency potential. In other words, if, yes. if that were a grade in a class, 10 or 20%, I'd be well below F. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay, so there's a it's lot of... staggering. Staggering, right. I mean, even getting an air conditioning unit to like a C would be a big deal, 70%. Yes, yes it would. Okay. And it would be a huge deal for, for our planet. So, so we're seeing approaches that can take today's basic technology, take it to the edge of performance that we think can hit the criteria. But we're also starting to see some next generation technologies and some of them actually really fascinating and see significant potential from an efficiency perspective. And also, a number of these don't use refrigerants. They have no working fluid as such. Ian, thanks so much for joining us. This has just been fascinating. Oh, it's a pleasure. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to share some of what we're seeing with you, Ryan. Ian Campbell is senior fellow with the Rocky Mountain Institute in Boulder, which works on sustainability worldwide. It's sponsoring the Global Cooling Prize, a contest to create an Earth-friendly air conditioner. We spoke back in April. Okay, let's get back to the garden now and plants that thrive in Colorado, like beard tongue. Now, that might sound more like a medical condition. In fact, it's the most Colorado wildflower, says Panayoti Kelaidis, senior curator at the Denver Botanic Gardens. He helped put together a catalog of 1,200 of what he calls the most essential, beautiful, and unique wildflowers in the West. And welcome back to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Great to be back. Let's not skip over beard tongue. You say it's a beautiful flower with an unfortunate name. But you have also said it's the most Colorado flower. Explain what you mean. I think that uh, 
what makes the beer tongue so so Colorado is that we have one of the largest concentrations of them. There's hundreds of species, and we have almost uh, 60 or 70. There's one other state that has a few more, but we won't talk about Utah. Okay. <laughs> Des- describe some of yeah. the beard tongues for us. Well, uh, I, anybody who uh, drives up in the mountains this time of year, June, July, August, the roadsides are often full of them. We all, often wonder, what did they do before road cuts? Because they, they're so thick along the road cuts, and they can be um, usually these dazzling blues or lavenders or purples or sometimes scarlet and uh, even white, but they're very showy and they're like related to snapdragons as a consequence. And they're also being grown more and more in gardens. So This is an important question, which is how many of the wildflowers, say in this guide, could be grown in my garden, have seeds available? Well, a lot more. Uh, interestingly enough, this book uh, was written by the horticulturists at Denver Botanic Gardens and, and, and myself. And uh, as a consequence, uh, uh, there, is, there are occasional references to plants that are good for gardens. And 20 years ago, you would have found very few, but uh, gardening with natives has become more and more popular. And something certainly the Botanic Gardens has tried to support. How did the name Beard Tongue happen? Any idea? Well, I think uh, uh, somewhere along the line, uh, most of our common names uh, kind of evolve over time and sort of naturally. But sometimes uh, in the case of a lot of our American flowers, because we're such a young country, some botanist comes up with something and then it sticks. And uh, I don't think that's really the best name for the plant. So we need to people out there come up with, let's come up with some better names. Oh, you want to, re- okay. <laughs> Not necessarily for beard tongue. That's Love settled. Uh, okay. Alas, yeah, yeah. Does it look like a beard or a tongue? Well, the, it, it has a large staminode, which is like a stamen. Uh, and it usually, in many of them, they have... Uh, uh, kind of some hairs on them. But it's not necessarily the first thing people notice. No. Yeah, what, what are some names you think do flustus? Oh, well, of course, all the daisies. You know, all the, I love daisy because it uh, comes from day's eye. You know, the day's eye, the sun, and uh, like sunflowers. And, oh. Uh, yeah, yeah. So there's lots of very poetic names uh, that have evolved over, over the millennia. I love paintbrush. Yeah. That's one of, one of my favorites, too. What are some of the showiest flowers that are native to Colorado? And I love this term showy when yeah. <laughs> like the flower is showing off. Well, they that's what kind of what they do. Uh I think the showiest flowers uh often are uh, like the daisies cuz this time of year if you drive around Colorado you're going to see a lot of different yellow daisies and uh, uh also uh uh, there are some very, you know, very sexy kinds of flowers like the orchids. Uh, those have a, a big following amongst the wildflower enthusiasts because they're rare. These are orchids native to the Rocky Mountains. Oh, yeah. We have dozens of native species of orchids. Most of them aren't terribly showy, but a few are spectacular. There's a little tiny fairy slipper. Now, how's that for common name? There's a good name. <laughs> it uh, blooms usually in, in, in late May, June at high elevations, and it has a spectacular flower. It looks like something that would be on a, a little fairy's foot. A little fairy's foot. And your Twitter handle seems to give away a little something. It's at Telesonics. That must pay homage to a plant you love. Well, it does, actually. It's a, it's a saxifrage that grows uh, pretty much only on, between Pikes Peak and Longs Peak. What was the word you used? A saxifrage. That's what what a, is that? That's a Latin name for a group of uh, high mountain plants that are found all over the world. And uh, in Latin, saxifraga means break a rock. 
because they look like they're they always ground rocks. Ah, and Telesonics is one of these. Descri- it is. Describe it. Well, it uh, has scalloped uh, beautiful leaves, very attractive, uh, lovely green leaves, and then it has short stems, maybe up to eight inches tall, and these piercing pink, hot rose pink flowers. They're very, very showy. And uh, it's, uh, it's uh, a Colorado endemic. Tell us about Little Red Elephant. Well, almost anybody who has children had better learn that one. That's one of our most (laughs) widespread uh, plants from the mountain wet areas, bogs, almost anywhere above 7,000, 8,000 feet where there's a wet meadow. You're apt to see these up to tree line. And they look exactly like a a miniature elephant head. Is this one that could grow in a garden? Uh, Yeah. if you did, if you ever succeeded in growing that in a garden, you could probably publish it in a major journal. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's never, strangely enough, that whole genus, which is an enormous genus, uh, uh, have proved to be almost impossible to grow. Speaking of wildflowers that look like their names, the shooting star. Tell me yeah, about the well, shooting star. That's that's a beauty, and uh, that's pretty widespread, all the way from the foothills, all the way up to the high mountains, usually along streams. And uh, they've now put that in primula, primrose, but it used to be when it was first described because the petals uh, are pointing backwards, kind of like a, a well, like a shooting star. Mm. And uh, it's certainly something which I've loved from the time I was a little kid. You're saying it's been reclassified. This oh, yes. The botanist. Yeah, the botanist. Well, was, of course, we talk about that in the, in the foreword. I do a little bit. But uh, uh, botany is a, is a living science, and so things are, are constantly being reviewed. And our understanding of them is deepening. It, it makes me wonder if you think we've identified all of the wildflower species that exist in the Rocky Mountain West, or there are still things to discover. Oh, no. Almost every, every year, year or so, new plants uh uh, that are new to science are found in the Rocky Mountains because uh, the Rocky Mountains are pretty enor- enormous range and, and highly highly uh, complex, and there really aren't that many botanists out there looking for them. And we tend to go to the same place again and again. So when somebody veers off to a new spot, uh, a new plant can be found. Have you discovered a new plant? Well, uh, in a manner of speaking, I've found several, but. Uh, uh, it was way back in 1980, I got a call from a fellow, and he said there's a, a lady's tresses in Golden. And I, a lady's? Tress. Tress. It's a kind of an orchid. And I laughed, and I said, oh, no, there's no lady tresses in orchid, they, because they grow at high elevations. And he says, no, no, there is. And I went, and sure enough, there were thousands of them, and it turned out eventually it was a new species. And I was kind of in the chain of, of discovery. But this is happening every year, you say? Oh, yeah. I would say almost every year. I think last year one or two were named, but not a huge number. But uh, uh, plants are being discovered ongoingly. Well, thank you for being with us. What would you name your plant if you discovered something? <laughs> any any okay, names uh, in the uh, words? Well, we, we don't have a, a name for a Colorado plant. Why not, why not Coloradoa? A Coloradoa? So. <laughs> Th- that doesn't exist. Well, actually, just come to think of it, I think that there's a synonym. So we'll have to think of something else. Okay. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Panayote Kelaidis is Senior Curator and Director of Outreach at the Denver Botanic Gardens. We spoke in August. He helped put together the book Wildflowers of the Rocky Mountain Region, which catalogs 1,200 flowering plant species in our area. You belong among the wildflowers. You belong in a boat out at sea. Sail away, kill the hours you belong somewhere you feel free 
And that's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. And special thanks to Patrice Mondragon. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News. Go away somewhere all bright and